Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer on the doors of perception. <laughs> the good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Jesus Tarbay. On this edition, we'll feature some more photic sneezing, what breeds are, and the naked scientist. But first, here's the news with Victoria Bond and Ian Wolf. <laughs> Scientists in South Africa have come up with a novel way of purifying water on a small scale using a sachet, rather like a tea bag, but instead of imparting flavor to the water, the bag absorbs toxins, filters out and kills bacteria, and cleans the water. The scientists at Stellenbosch University in South Africa have made a sachet which looks like a tea bag and cleans the water on a small scale. The bag was designed to help communities with no water purification facilities to clean their water. The sachets really are a ripoff on the tea bag. They're made of inexpensive tea bag material which contains nanoscale antimicrobial fibers which filter out contaminants and trap bacteria, and filled with granules of activated carbon that kills the bugs. The nanofibers are about one hundredth of the width of a human hair. The bags fit in the neck of an ordinary bottle and can clean up to a liter of the dirtiest water to about the same quality as the bottled kind. Once the bag has been used, it is discarded and a new bag is fitted in the neck of the bottle. The discarded bags have no environmental impact as they disintegrate in only a few days and the materials are not toxic to humans. The inventor of the filter, Dean of Faculty of Science at Stellenbosch University, Professor Eugene Klot, who is a microbiologist, says that the filter presents a decentralized point-of-use technology. As such, it should find acceptance in the places where it's needed and where there is insufficient infrastructure for piped water. The sachet filter is still being tested by the South African Bureau of Standards, but Boat says that early testing on samples of river water near the university were successful. The bags are expected to be available by the end of the year at a cost of about half a U.S. cent, which is three South African cents, per bag, which makes it affordable even for poor communities in Africa, where millions of people do not have access to clean drinking water, and where waterborne diseases are a major problem. Oh, brother, boys seem to delay sisters' maturation. I have a particular interest in this story as an older brother to a younger sister. Boys may delay their sisters from becoming women and from having sex, new findings from Australia suggest. The presence of older brothers seem to delay the onset of menstruation in girls by nearly a year on average, and having younger brothers seem to postpone the beginning of sexual activity in women by slightly more than a year. Scientists found this by interviewing 273 Australians. The presence of brothers was already known to have other influences on girls. To learn whether they also had an effect on their sisters' reproductive success, researchers investigated 197 women and 76 men. They ranged in age from 18 to 75, and all but 10 of these participants, seven of whom were women, had siblings. This research helps us to better understand how family dynamics influence development, according to the researcher Fritha Milne, a behavioural ecologist at the University of Western Australia. 
In attempting to explain the delayed starts of menstruation and sexual activity, the researchers ruled out factors such as socioeconomic class. Instead, they conjectured that older brothers may have delayed the physiological maturation of sisters by absorbing more parental resources or by applying psychological stresses. Imagine that. Meanwhile, younger brothers may have delayed girls' behavioural maturation by demanding that their older sisters assume caretaking roles. Other statistics, such as the number of pregnancies sisters had or their ages at first pregnancy and first birth, did not seem affected by the presence of brothers. This lack of effect may be due to the prolonged independence contemporary women often get to experience prior to childbearing. During this pre-motherhood stint, women could earn resources on their own to help provide for any future families, overcoming the negative effects of having brothers. Prior studies had suggested that boys and girls who were born after one or two brothers weighed significantly less at birth than infants with no older brothers. It was also found that bearing sons is more costly to a mother than bearing daughters. Women pregnant with a boy require 10% more food and carry male offspring longer in the womb, and boys on average weigh more at birth than girls do. Future research might focus on measures for potential mechanisms and thus determine why and how brothers delay the onset of sexual maturity and sexual activity of their sisters. They detailed their findings online in the Proceedings of the Royal Society Bulletin for August. The discovery of a rare magnetic star, or magnetar, is challenging theories about the origin of black holes. Magnetars are a special type of neutron star with a powerful magnetic field. They're formed by gravitational collapse after their original, or progenitor, star dies and forms a catastrophic supernova. For this newly discovered magnetar, astronomers calculated that the mass of the progenitor must have been at least 40 times greater than that of our Sun. Collapsing stars of this size should form a black hole. The fact that this one resulted in a neutron star challenges established theory. The study, which was led by Dr. Ben Ritchie of the Open University, is published in the Journal of Astronomy and Astrophysics. The new magnetar was found in an extraordinary star cluster known as Westerland 1, located about 16,000 light-years away from the southern constellation of Ara. This region contains numerous massive stars. Now, to give you an idea of their magnitude, if the Earth was located at the center of this cluster, our night sky would be full of hundreds of stars as bright as the full moon. To calculate the mass of the progenitor stars, the research team estimated its lifespan. Massive stars collapse earlier than small stars because the pressure on their core is greater, which causes them to burn up their hydrogen fuel more rapidly. The astronomers assumed that this star formed at the same time as the others in the cluster. So, the fact that this star had already collapsed shows that it must have been more massive than the other stars that still exist there. Stars that are 25 times more massive than our Sun normally collapse to form black holes. Dr. Nugarella of the University of Alicante in Spain, co-author on the study, said the mystery of the missing black hole might be explained if the progenitor star got rid of about nine-tenths of its mass before exploding as a supernova. One way it could have achieved this was if the progenitor star was part of a binary star and its twin star pulled off some of its mass. This would have allowed it to avoid the fate of becoming a black hole. So is the theory correct or isn't it? Only future observations will tell.
Do you sneeze when you look at the sun? Roughly 10% of people suffer from photic sneezing, a common genetic condition that causes you to sneeze when you look at bright light. Despite it being a relatively common condition, there has been little research into what caused it and what evolutionary benefit there might be. Mark West spoke to Dr. Louis Tachek from Howard Hughes Medical Institute, who has been studying PSR about the causes of the condition and started by asking him whether it was in fact a real condition. Uh, it's absolutely real, and a phenomenon where people, after being in relative darkness for a certain amount of time, walking out into bright light or turning on a bright light will lead them to sneeze usually the same number of times um, each time they go through that cycle and maybe once or twice or three times or more and we really don't understand why it happens but there's no question that it's a real phenomenon and it appears to affect perhaps as many as 10% of the population and it appears that it's a genetic trait that's passed on from people who have it to 50% of their children on average. Okay, and it's a, and it's always a, a multiple sneeze, is it? So it's not like, uh, well, is, is it in any way related to, you know, hay fever or smelling pollen, that sort of thing? Oh, no, completely different. What sort of purpose would, would sneezing at the sun uh, cause? Is it, is it something that we've evolved to do, or do you think it's a byproduct of something else? Uh, I can't say with any certainty since we don't understand what it is precisely. There doesn't, I can't think of a selective advantage of sneezing when you go from dark to light. But I also can't think of a selective disadvantage, again, unless you were flying a, uh, you know, an airplane at, at a, you know, Mach 1 and the light coming through the trees led you to sneeze and you tipped the controls and crashed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but... I can't think of any example where sneezing in that setting would actually help you. When you sneeze from a cold or hay fever or dust in the air, that's really more of a protective response. You may have inhaled some pollen or dust that's irritating the inside of your nose or, or your airways, your upper airways, and so a sneeze often allows you to just blow all that stuff out, clean out some of the stuff that you may have inhaled that is... is uh, causing some discomfort for your, your nasal mucosa. And uh, is it associated with age or, or sex? I know it's, uh, it, it, it's genetic, so if, if, if your parents have got it, you've got a higher chance of getting it, but is it associated with any other uh, the factors? Not that we know of. You know, I, I should emphasize again, we know very, very little about it, except that it exists. Because it's not a disease, it, you know, if people were dying from this, then, of course, we would know a lot more about it because a lot of people would study it. Um, but it doesn't seem to be a good thing or a bad thing. It just happens that about 10% of the population do it. And, and it appears to come on, again, nobody's looked in a really careful way at this, but, but my impression from talking to lots of people with photic sneeze reflex is that it comes on in childhood and often is lifelong. And your uh, neurogenics lab, um, you've been uh, researching uh, this for, for a little while and, and doing surveys of, uh, of, pop, of the populace. What, uh, how have you conducted uh, your work into this? Well, we've done less on this than I'd like. Um, you know, I was 
I became interested in PSR because we also have cloned genes for some other reflex phenomena. So I'm a neurologist. There, we, we know, for example, that in some epilepsies that a strobe light can cause a, a person with epilepsy to seize in, on some occasions. Or if they don't seize, if, if you do an EEG, measure brain waves of an epileptic, epileptic patient, and turn on a strobe light in front of their eyes, you can see abnormal waves in their in their brain that, that are not seizures per se, but in response to the flashing light. We, we know that there are movement-induced movement disorders. There are, um, you know, lots of things that happen in response to sensory stimuli that, that themselves are diseases. And, and so while PSR is not a disease, it doesn't really cause trouble, although it, some might consider it annoying. Um, I think that if we could understand it by collecting families and identifying a gene and, and genetic variants that cause PSR, that we'd learn something interesting about biology that might have impact on our understanding of some of these other reflex phenomena. And it's it's not just uh, so it's not just looking at the sun. It's it's going from it's that is that contrast from uh, really dark to really bright, is it? Yeah. So somebody who's sleeps in a very dark bedroom with curtains and then walks, wakes up and walks out onto a sunny veranda. Person who's in a movie, Sunday afternoon, Saturday afternoon matinee movie in a dark theater walks out into the sunny parking lot. Um, it is from you know going from very little light, relatively speaking, to very bright light. Probably know from your own experience if a person is in a. Uh, do you, has that happened to you? Going from a matinee into a sunny uh, afternoon, have you sneezed doing that? Yes, very, yes, that's that's very much me. So now if you walk back into the theater for two minutes and then come back out, you don't sneeze. Right. Right, so there's a refractory period. There's a, you have to, and, I, and again, I, can't, I don't understand why that is, but it's fascinating that after you've done that, after you've sneezed in response to you know, bright light, you won't sneeze in response. Most of people who experience this won't sneeze again to bright light unless they've been in the dark for a certain period of time. And nobody's measured that, but it seems to be at least a half hour or an hour by talking to people. That's not been carefully quantitated by anyone. That, that's interesting. So there's a, there's a refractory period after, after the sneezing, which I guess is the, the muscles relaxing back to their state or natural state or, or something like that. But then you, you always sneeze in multiples when this happens. Uh, not everybody. Some people only sneeze once. Some people say they sneeze a different number of times, but more typically a person says, yeah, I sneeze once or once or twice, and then a different person says, oh, no, I almost always sneeze three times, or yes, I always sneeze or usually sneeze two times when I do that. So it differs from person to person, although it tends to be uh, uh, the same number of times most of the time for, for most people that, you know, that I've talked with about this. Huh. It's, How many times do you sneeze? Um, I'm not sure I know exactly, but it, multiple, definitely multiple. But I also, uh, if if my nose can get irritated by maybe somebody's perfume or I don't I don't get hay fever, but some smells set me off and I can sneeze maybe almost 10 times in a row. So I don't know. I, I always thought there was something uh, interesting going on with me, but it sounds like maybe the, photon, uh, the photic sneezing is a, uh, a separate thing to the, the hay fever-like sneezing. 
Yeah, I can't say with certainty. I sometimes sneeze when I'm around somebody wearing really... I, I don't have PSR. Um, you know, I can go from the dark to the light, and I, you know, almost never sneeze in that setting. Um, but there's some smell... Well, certainly if you're sprinkling a lot of black pepper on a... Yeah, sure. ...cooking, that, that irritates the the nasal mucosa, the no, you know, the lining of the nose in a way that pretty consistently makes me sneeze and probably you and lots of other people. I think that is separate, but that's not to say, I, I've never sneezed 10 times in response to, you know, really strong perfume. And so it may be the case that people with PSR are more sensitized. But again, I, I don't, I can't say that with any certainty because to my knowledge, no one's ever really quanti- tried to quantify that in a really objective, you know, uh, sort of way. That was part one of Mark's chat with Dr. Luce Tatchett from Howard Hughes Medical Institute on the photics next reflex. Do you suffer from this condition? Let us know by sending us an email or voting on our sneeze poll on Facebook, www.facebook.com slash Diffusion Radio. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio. Diffusion at 2SER.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We had so many questions to answer in last week's Science Week, so we had to save one for this week. Lachlan Watmore will now discuss the difference between a breed and a subspecies. Firstly, let me apologize for my absence from the Science Week show. I was meant to answer two questions. What is a breed and how does speciation occur? But I didn't. Now, a pedigree can also be called a breed, and a breed is a human-made thing. It's not actually a scientific classification. Breeds shouldn't be confused with subspecies, which is the lowest level of taxonomy and is a scientifically recognised group. A breed is rather more in the eye of the beholder and is defined more loosely as members of a subspecies that share certain characteristics and can breed true, quote-unquote, i.e. consistently produce offspring that look the same, poodle after poodle, wheat crop after wheat crop. For example, the domestic dog is descended from the grey wolf, whose scientific name is Canis lupus. Canis lupus has given rise to two subspecies, Canis lupus lupus, the Eurasian wolf, which these days is difficult to find in the wild, and Canis lupus familiaris, the domesticated dog, which just might keep you awake every night if you're done new to the wretched beast. All members of Canis lupus can interbreed with each other and produce fertile offspring, so they are all members of the same species, Canis lupus. The subspecies refer more to geographical variation than to major genetic differences. However, the difference between a breed and a subspecies is not actually due to degree of difference, but the fact that humans have directly intervened. Giving a scientific name to all breeds of dogs, for example, would be almost impossible because of the number of mongrels, which I should properly call hybrids. What would you call a dog with a bit of blue healer, a bit of rottweiler and a bit of Alsatian, apart from Muttley? So when does one species split off from another? This is called speciation, and it occurs when a population of organisms is isolated from its parent stock and undergoes genetic modification to such an extent that it can no longer interbreed with the parent stock and produce fertile offspring. So, for example, the original equus species that arrived in Asia from North America split off several species that became separated from the parent stock and grew up to become asses and zebras as well as horses. Sure enough, donkeys and horses can produce mules together 
but mules are sterile because donkeys and horses are two separate species. And for more information on the origins of species, I refer you to a well-known book called On the Origins of Species by Means of Natural Selection, which is a groovy little volume indeed. I keep my copy next to my Bible. That was Lachlan Watmore. You're listening to Diffusion Radio, brought to you around the world on www.diffusionradio.com. Next up, Bonnie Yu spoke to the naked scientist Chris Smith from BBC Radio about sustainable Australia. So, what I really want to know is how climate change would affect um, disease spreading yeah. in terms of Australia. Okay, well, what we know about the prospects of climate change are that some areas of the world will get wetter and some will become drier. And that means that ultimately the amount of land that we've got to live on is going to get less. And this means that some animals will lose their natural current habitat and they'll have to move to a new one. And the consequence of this is that there may be increases in the population of some animals and some parasites, some vectors. There may be movements of those animals and parasites and vectors and there may be movements of humans and as a result the places that people find themselves living side by side with other humans and with other animals may change and this may facilitate the opportunity or provide opportunities for the viruses and other organisms carried by those animals and those people to swap places and that could have impacts on disease risk. So why would Australians feel that there would be such a sense of urgency to tackle climate change? Well, if you take a look at this country's agricultural industry, you've got a whole lot of people who are well in excess in terms of population of the carrying capacity, the natural carrying capacity of the farmable land here. And intensification has already been used in order to sustain the population as it is. So if the population increases, that's already going to pose a problem. If climate change means that there will be even less land for more people and the land is already under pressure because it's already been intensified, then that's really quite a big risk, I'd say. So there's been a lot of talks in Australia recently of um, this population debate uh, that Australia is being overpopulated. Do you think that that is the case or do you think it is because of government policies that you know population should be spread out more evenly? Like. What would be your view on that? Some people have got to live in the red centre, and that's that. Um, no, the world is overpopulated. It's not just any one country that's to blame. The world has got too many people in it. And we're currently using resources at the rate of about two planet Earths, but we've only got one. And that means that we have to come up with some novel strategies to destroy the Earth less by being more efficient with what we've got and exploiting better resources that we currently under-exploit, like solar energy, for example. There's huge amounts of energy that we just don't use, and this country is terrible at exploiting solar energy, actually. We need to do more. And with that in mind, we could make a difference, and we could mean that we're not going to harm the, the Earth as much as we otherwise will if we don't do something about it. So do you think Australia should invest more in renewable resources? And do you think that Australia currently is doing enough? Why? Put it this way, if I go around places in Europe, you can see umpteen solar panels on people's houses, and it's not even sunny there. Mm. If you come to this country where there's tons of sun, mm. there's hardly a single solar panel to be seen, mm. relatively speaking. But there's a lot of coal, and as a result, that's what tends to get used, because it's easy, and there's a coal industry who've got a very powerful voice. I think people need to take this seriously. This is the country to pioneer 
the future of solar. So apart from solar energy, what else could Australia do more? Well, solar is the obvious choice because you've got huge amounts of land that are currently underused, largely because no one can live there very sustainably anyway. So why not use some of that land which is currently being heated by tonnes of energy arriving from the sun and just making the ground hot? Why not exploit that for solar energy purposes? That would be my first, my first thought. And then look at other possibilities like wave and tidal, but there's, that's more restricted in this country. So I think the way to go is to look at the solar really carefully. So would you be, let's say, disappointed with how Australia is in the sense that um, it's, it's, you know, pretty much in, without action in terms of climate change? Well, I don't know what the level of action is that's being taken. Um, but what, I mean, th you know, this is my favourite country on earth too. I love being here. Um, but what I will say is I do think it's a bit disappointing that Australians are letting the side down by being the per capita worst emitters of climate change gases in the whole world. And the only saving grace is that there aren't very many of you. So, in fact, in the grand scheme of things, the Americans are far worse. And uh, we can blame them instead. Okay. But then Australia... Australia's population is expected to increase. How should Australia's policy go about to tackle this really moral challenge? The problem is that people need to come and go if we're to have a free society. Everywhere on earth is seeing a rising population and it's going to make life very difficult if we start saying, right, we've got too many people, we will stop any more coming in because this could actually make big dents in the country's economy and in other aspects of the way the country works which could actually undermine the ability of the country to do more to offset the problem later. So it would be a, a potential foot shoot, if you see what I mean. That was Bonnie Yu and Chris the Naked Scientist Smith in a Sustainable Australia. And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you would like to contact us, then send email to diffusion at 2scr.com or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com. Contributing to the program were Victoria Bond, Mark West, Ian Wolfe, and Lachlan Watmore, and Bonnie Yu. Diffusion has been produced by Victoria Bond in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. I'm Jesus Tarbay. Join us inside your radio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.